Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with the pick of our week. I'm Anne McElvoy, senior editor. And in this podcast, Morrissey's crooning leaves Mexico swooning. Generation Y meets workforce stereotypes and why we worry more today than in Shakespeare's time. But first, our cover leader hailed the steady rise of private schools in poorer countries. According to the World Bank, across the developing world, a fifth of primary school pupils are enrolled in private schools, twice as many as 20 years ago. Politicians and many teachers are less than impressed with this schools for private cash boom. Governments see education as the state's job. Teachers' unions dislike private schools because they pay less and are harder to organise in. NGOs tend to be ideologically opposed to the private sector. But our leader gave three reasons why private schooling passes the test with flying colours. First, it is bringing in money, not just from parents but also from investors, some in search of a profit. And often too, they're better value for money than state schools. Measuring this is hard since the children who go to private schools tend to be better off and therefore likely to perform better. But a rigorous four-year study of 6,000 pupils in Andhra Pradesh in southern India suggested that private pupils perform better in English and science than public school pupils and at a similar level in maths and Telugu, the local language. The private schools achieve these results at a third of the cost of the public schools. Lastly, private schools tend to bring in more innovative technology, like tablets, into the classroom. Since technology has great, though as yet mostly unrealised, potential in education, this could be important. So private schools, particularly in poor countries, should be encouraged by governments, not discouraged. The growth of private schools is a manifestation of the healthiest of instincts. Parents desire to do the best for their children. Governments that are too disorganised or corrupt to foster this trend should get out of the way. One figure who was busy handing out end-of-term prizes to himself was the president of the Philippines, Benino Aquino. An article in our Asia section recounted how Mr Aquino, who's nearing the end of his term, is growing sentimental. It was a litany of gratitude to put an Oscar winner to shame. In his last State of the Nation address to the Philippine Congress on July 27th, President Benigno Noynoy Aquino thanked God, his late parents and political allies, along with his social secretary, hairdresser and clothes stylist. We are, he added, only in the first chapter of the great story of the Filipino people. Despite many problems like persistent poverty, Mr Aquino has made progress towards establishing more transparent governance in the Philippines. He has done some commendable things, including creating a commission to oversee spending by government-owned companies, publishing more budgetary information online and cleaning up government departments. 
So who might take over the Mr. Clean mantle? The President himself is thought to be ready to endorse Mar Rojas, the Interior Secretary. That may be in gratitude to Mr. Rojas for not challenging Mr. Aquino in 2010, but the minister is gaff-prone and lacks popular appeal. Widespread appeal isn't one thing the British singer Morrissey has to worry about, at least not in Mexico. An article in our Americas section explained why the melancholic Mancunian has found a captive audience in the unlikeliest of places. The lugubrious strains of Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now waft across a sunny beach in Acapulco. If that song in that setting surprises you, then you do not know about the strange affinity between Mexicans and Morrissey, the morbid underdog-loving frontman of The Smiths, a British band of the 1980s, who then went solo. And an imitation act has risen in popularity too. In Mexico City, a band called Mexrisi is hard at work recording an album of his songs, in styles ranging from trumpet-blaring mariachi to throbbing norteño. Its creator, disc jockey Camilo Lara, calls it Girlfriend in a Conga, a play on one of the Smith's wickedest songs, which puts the girlfriend in a coma. To Mexican fans, Morrissey's a natural fit in a country whose musical traditions centre on sadness. In Mexican street music, the exuberant melodies overlie bleakly funny lyrics about loneliness, depression and self-pity. The jubilant trumpets, like Johnny Marr's guitar in The Smith's Heyday, can strike hammer blows to the heart. And in his autobiography, Morrissey returned the admiration. There is a certain Mexican movement of the head, telling we from elsewhere that they know very well how they are thought not to matter. Because of this, they have abnormal strength and love, with anchored hearts beyond the imaginations of royal dictatorships. That made Mexicans swoon. There is this violent country, and then there is this Brit from Manchester who sees us with eyes of love, Mr Lara says. Love and understanding can cross cultural divides, but not always intergenerational ones. Our Schumpeter columnist wrote that the gap between young and old makes for odd policies in the workplace as companies struggle to understand what makes millennials tick. One of the perks about getting old is that you are allowed to talk nonsense about the young. Plato was said to have complained that young people disrespect their elders and ignore the law. Peter the Hermit griped that they think of nothing but themselves and are impatient of all restraint. Today, business pundits mix praise about young people with gripes. Such modern-day sages tell employers they must adjust their management styles to meet the expectations of millennials, those born between 1980 and 2000, also known as Generation Y. But such assumptions aren't based on evidence, researchers say, and at worst they could be harmful. Jennifer Deal of the Centre for Creative Leadership, an executive training outfit, and Alec Levinson of the University of Southern California studied 25,000 people in 22 countries and concluded that most generalisations about millennials as employees are inconsistent at best and destructive at worst. And a big report concluded that workers of different generations actually have more in common than separates them. They want roughly the same things regardless of when they were born. To be given interesting work to do, to be rewarded on the basis of their contributions and to be given the chance to work hard and get ahead. 
One country with a high number of millennials is Turkey. Just over two-fifths of its 75 million citizens are under the age of 24. And a story in our finance section looked at Ankara's economy, which is, it appears, less than sturdy of late. GDP is expected to expand by barely 3% this year, after only 2.9% growth in 2014. Thanks partly to the tumbling lira, inflation is stuck at around 8%. Unemployment at almost 10% remains high. Turkey's Consumer Confidence Index recently touched a six-year low. And it's not just growth in GDP that's slowing down. The combination of low saving and high investment means that it has long run a large current account deficit. In 2014, it was at 6% of GDP, proportionately the biggest in the OECD, a club mostly of rich countries. And the cost of foreign currency borrowing is shooting up too. The economy's total external financing needs are now put at around $200 billion a year. According to the IMF, the foreign debts of banks and other companies shot up from around 5% of GDP in 2008 to 18% of GDP in 2013. With the lira's fall making such loans more expensive to service, these numbers are worryingly high. AK, the party which has ruled Turkey since 2002, is still trying to form a coalition after losing its overall majority in June's parliamentary election. If it does manage to cobble together a government someday soon, the party will have to grapple with some glaring economic truths. Turkey has no technology industry to speak of and spends little on research and development. Many economists reckon it is caught in a middle-income trap from which it can escape only through substantial structural reforms. Sadly, none of the parties jostling for a place in government seems interested in that. Tech giants such as Google and Facebook have established a reputation for seeking out some of the youngest and brightest of graduates. But Silicon Valley could recruit even younger faces in the years to come. A new programming language, Kibo, is designed for those aged four to seven. It takes a more tactile approach to the way we communicate with robots. Instead of arranging, as an older programmer might, a set of constants, variables, operations and expressions, all written in something resembling English into a logical sequence, a Kibo programmer arranges wooden blocks that carry stickers bearing symbols. These symbols tell a plastic robot what to do next. Well, go on then. A straight arrow means move ahead by one foot. A curved one means turn in the direction in which the arrow is pointing. Two semicircular arrows pointing towards each other's tails means perform the previous instruction again, a command that is particularly important because it introduces neophytes to the concept of recursion. But it is also a toy with a purpose. This is to increase the supply of people who are genuinely computer literate. For despite what they may think about themselves, most so-called digital natives of the internet generation are not. They are, it is true, whizzes at operating the devices technologists have thrown at them, but few have much idea what is going on under the bonnet. And as if we didn't have enough to worry about, it seems that English speakers have become more anxious in the past hundred years, at least according to Francis O'Gorman, a professor of Victorian literature at the University of Leeds. 
Our book section reviewed O'Gorman's book Worrying: A Literary and Cultural History. The academic maintained that the word worry is quite new to English literature. Although it was used in the 16th century, in all of Shakespeare's works, worry appears just once as a transitive verb denoting strangling or choking. Only in the Victorian era did its contemporary meaning come into widespread use. So why did Mr. O'Gorman think we fret more than our ancestors did? Contemporary angst is inextricably tied up with living in an advanced, hypermodern society, and yet when worrying takes hold, it often does so in ways that appear altogether pre-modern, even pre-enlightenment. How else to explain, for example, the anti-rational, superstitious caprice of the obsessively compulsive? Or the obsessively religious. It all sounds like a rather stern reflection on how we cope with stress today. But Mr. O'Gorman is a pleasant and good-humoured guide, and his candid, self-effacing style helps mitigate any boredom. He believes that being a modern warrior is just the moth-eaten sign of being human, and playfully suggests that people should refine Descartes' famous dictum to "I worry, therefore I am." Doubtless, Descartes suffered from a touch of anxiety too. Indeed, I think we're out of time. Therefore, it's time to say goodbye. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was the pick of our week in London. This is the Economist. The Economist.